take your Bibles, please, this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 3. Welcome to our visitors that are here for the first time, and welcome to our friends. Glad that you could join us this morning. Over the last few weeks, we have started a new sermon series called Misquoted, Twisting the Bible Out of Context, and we have taken certain passages that are very misquoted, and um, we have explained the context to you and explain the meaning to you. And the purpose of this is to help you see how important it is for us to be interpreting the Scriptures biblically, reading the Scriptures biblically, understanding the Scriptures as they are meant to be understood, as the author intended them for us to understand them. So hopefully at the end of this, you'll have a greater appreciation for expository preaching, the type of preaching that we are committed to here. But today, we are looking at Matthew chapter 3, another very popular misquoted verse that uh, many people don't understand the context. And verse 11, we're going to be looking at, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So we're going to look at what biblical baptism is, that is the title of my message this morning. But if you would stand with me, please, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 12, looking at the verses before and the verses after, as we should to understand um, one verse, not to take it out of context, but to read the context surrounding this verse. Matthew chapter 3, we'll read from verse 1 to verse 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance." But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Lord, we ask for your help this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture. We do pray that you would help us to interpret this passage 
correctly, biblically, that we would have a proper understanding of your word. And once we have a proper understanding of your word, we would grow in a proper worship of you, Lord. We pray for your help today, um, Lord, that we would become more biblical in our thinking. Father, that we would become more biblical even in our understanding of who you are as, as God. Lord, we want to be more conformed to the image of your Son, and we know that only happens if we understand the word of truth, and we love the word of truth. So, Lord, we pray, give us, give us a, a desire as the deer pants for the water. May our souls long after you and your word, and to understand it better, to know you better, that we can make you known amongst the nations. So we pray for your help today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So as I said earlier on, Matthew chapter 3 verse 11 is a very popular misquoted verse. And in this one verse, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is mentioned, as well as the baptism of fire. So this verse is used in many Pentecostal circles to teach that if you want the power of God in your life and you want to experience His glory and His, His blessings and if you want to experience His spiritual gifts, then you must have a second Holy Spirit baptism as well as a baptism of fire. So just this week I read an article by a Pentecostal author and uh, th this is what was written. Um, they said, Jesus is our Savior and our baptizer. After Jesus' resurrection, he continued the conversation by revealing the rest of his assignment to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire. When we ask for the fire of God to rest upon us, we will experience the glory of God. The fire of God prepares us to carry greater levels of glory. We are meant to go from one level to another level. Fire surrounds the glory. The fire of God is not to be associated with things that should be burned up and destroyed. The fire of God is not to be confused with persecution, affliction, sickness, and suffering. That's the end of the quote. Um, just let me say there are many things wrong with that explanation and interpretation of Scripture. And I will show you why as we go through this text this morning. Now, before you jump to conclusions and you, you think that I'm going to be bashing and criticizing our charismatic friends, please let me assure you that is not my goal this morning. My goal today, just as it has been from the beginning of the series, is to help us understand and to love the Scriptures. The elders' prayer for New Life Church is for us to be a healthy church with a healthy relationship with the God of truth. And that means a healthy relationship with the, the Word of truth, doesn't it? And if we want to rightly worship God in obedience to His Word, we must faithfully handle the Word of truth. And to understand any verse in Scripture, we need to look at the context. Again, context is king. So that leads to my first point this morning. 
we're going to be looking at the context from verse 1 to 6. We see John's preaching. We see John's preaching here. So John the Baptist has come preaching, and we see that the message he preaches is one of repentance. His baptism is a baptism of repentance in the wilderness in Judea. And he was sent as a herald to announce the arrival of Jesus, the, the Son of God. Um, he was a, a fiery preacher, and he was a little bit strange, but his message was plain for all to hear and understand. And his message was about God's kingdom is about to, to come, and it is about to dawn, and you are not ready when it comes, there will be judgment. And his message is repent of your sin and begin living for God because the Lord is coming. In verse 3 there, notice the author of this passage quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, which says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, that Isaiah text is a text about the Messiah that was to come. The old prophets, the prophets in the Old Testament prophesied about the Messiah that was to come. And one thing different is it tells us the Messiah, God's King, God's Savior, will be Himself. He's not going to send another Savior. He's going to send Himself. And this is the message that John was preaching, the same message that the Old Testament prophets were preaching Prepare the way for the Lord. He is arriving. Make a straight path for our God. And John the Baptist here is really the fulfillment of this Isaiah text as he prepares a way for, for God himself. And this passage speaks directly to the deity of Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah King that was prophesied in the Old Testament. So in verse 4, we are given a description of John, a description of what he, he looks like. Look at verse 4. It tells us John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was, was locusts and wild honey. Now, I've never eaten locusts. I'm not sure what they, they taste like, um, but that is peculiar. That is strange. John the Baptist was a peculiar person. He wasn't a normal everyday uh, church-going person like you and I. He, he was a prophet. He was a prophet. And what makes his appearance so important so that it is even mentioned here is because he looked a lot like even Elijah the prophet from the Old Testament. Like I said, John was in fact the last of the Old Testament prophets. And verse 5 and 6 tells us how um, his ministry grew in popularity. And many people thought that he was the Messiah, but this, this wasn't his intention. He had a clear vision for what he was called to do. He knew himself he wasn't the Messiah. His message was to call people, prepare them for the way of the Lord. In John 3 verse 28, John the Baptist says, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. So John knew what his mission was. John knew what his, his purpose was. John knew even what his, his message was. And John cautioned his disciples that 
what they had seen and heard from him was just the beginning of the miracle that was to come in the form of Jesus Christ. John was just a messenger sent by God to proclaim the truth. And he did it very effectively. And he did it very powerfully. And his message was simple and direct. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now my second point, as we look at his message, we see the meaning starting to unfold. But we also see his boldness here. We see his boldness in verse 7 to verse 10. Look at your Bibles in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, as we've seen, John preached, and he looked a lot like Elijah, and his message was very similar. Elijah didn't care who you were, whether you were a a king or whether you were a peasant, it didn't matter. He told you simply and clearly what God's Word said. And this is what we see in John the Baptist, very similar style. He was a bold preacher, and he spoke the same truth to everyone that came to see him. Now, it's important you see who he's talking to here. This is the context that we're still trying to figure out around that verse. John is speaking to these Pharisees directly. These Sadducees who think they are um, believers in the Messiah because they are religious, because they follow a set of rules. But he calls them vipers. He calls them snakes because they haven't even repented of their sins and yet they wanted to take his baptism of repentance. And he tells them to, to go away. He was angry with these Jewish leaders because while they were among the most evil in Jerusalem, they, they thought that they didn't have any sin that they needed to repent of. They thought that they were ready to be baptized. In many ways, they were self-righteous, very self-righteous. And in verse 7, he calls them snakes. He calls them snakes. And you see what John tells him in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, you are coming for baptism, and there has not been any repentance or concern for your sin. Now here's a comment from John MacArthur about this passage. He says, at the end of every harvest season, the farmer would go through his vineyard or orchard looking for plants that had borne no good fruit. And these would be cut down to make room for productive vines and trees and to keep them from taking the nutrients from the soil that were needed for the good plants. A fruitless tree was a worthless and useless tree, fit only to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus used a similar figure in describing false disciples in John 15 verse 6, when he says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. MacArthur goes on to say, Fruitless repentance is worthless 
and useless. It means absolutely nothing to God. So here were these Pharisees. They were the religious leaders who were acting one way, but were inside corrupt, unrepentant, unregenerate. And they were trying to receive this baptism of repentance. And we see that this was useless. It was not what they should have been doing and and searching for in the first place. And John the Baptist could see that. John the Baptist understood that. And he was able very clearly to identify their sin. And he told them what he thought of them very clearly. John says in verse 9, You just think you can be baptized without repentance? You think you are among God's people because you are Jewish and because you are children of Abraham? He says, understand, God is not impressed with your, with your lineage because you deep in yourself are a sinner. And I think there's an application here worth, worth mentioning. I think Pedro has said it before. You know, God doesn't have grandchildren. God doesn't have any grandchildren. God only has children. The application and even the message that John is preaching here is very important for us to understand. Every single one of us need to make a decision to follow Christ on our own. It's not our parents' decision. It's not our grandparents' decision. It's a decision that we have to independently make. And if you decide to follow Christ, as John the Baptist says so clearly here, then you can't do it 50-50 when it suits you and when it doesn't suit you, when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. You have to do it 100% properly. You have to show fruit of your repentance. And that's what he is talking about here. Your repentance must be obvious from the way that you live. God is number one. He can't be your number two or even your number three. As far as God is concerned, there is no such thing as, as Christianity light. What are the priorities in your life? That's the questions we need to be asking ourselves. Do you put God first? Do you put coming to church on Sunday first in order to meet with, with other, question, uh, other Christians and worship the Lord together and to be taught from the Word? Is that your priority every Sunday? Not just when it's convenient. Does your life show fruit of repentance? Have you turned from your sinful ways? Or are you still entertaining them? Have you turned from a life of ignoring God to now following after Him and, and making Him your, your number one priority? Have you truly been born again? God can search our hearts and He knows our hearts, but sometimes we are just as deceived as the Pharisees. We can be deceived like the Pharisees. You can't just rely on your on your, your culture. Cultural Christianity is, is a huge problem. You can't just rely on your upbringing. You can't just rely on your parents' religion, on your Christian heritage. You, just, you can't call yourself a Christian as, as helpful as all of those, those things may be. You must decide for yourself to follow Christ. You have to see your own sin for what it is and repent of it. You can't pray for your children's sins to be 
forgiven, you have to pray that same sin for yourself. And then live it. Turn from it. Why is it important? Well, it is. And John the Baptist makes a big deal of it. And let's see what John the Baptist says. Look at verse 10. He says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Biblical repentance is important because the tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This leads to my, to my last point. We see in verse 11 and verse 12 the conclusion here, but also John's prophecy. Look at verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So let me explain the last verse first, a bit about the winnowing forks and the, the threshing floors. This is an illustration from harvesting wheat. Um, many of the people who were with the Lord were farmers. They could understand this illustration, and unfortunately, I don't think we have many farmers here amongst us today. We don't have as many farmers as there were during this time when the scriptures were written. So these illustrations, sometimes we, we miss. But when they used to harvest wheat, the grain itself was, or still is, surrounded by a, a protected covering called chaff. And this chaff, you can't eat it, it's inedible. So you have to separate the, the grain inside from the chaff. The grain inside is what, is what we eat. Nowadays, this is done by combined harvesters. But back then, the first thing they had to do was to thresh the grain, which meant to, to loosen this, this chaff from the grain. They would do this on a, on a threshing floor, which was normally a flat surface. And often they would, they would stand on the grain or they would get animals to stomp on the grain so that the, the, the chaff would be broken and, and it would be loosened from the, the grain. And now you have the chaff and the, and the wheat together. That had to be separated now that it was loosened. So what they would do is they would grab a, a winnowing fork and they would toss the hole up into the air and the breeze would blow in the air and separate the, the wheat from the chaff. The grain, the wheat was fit for eating, would be gathered together in the, in the storage silos, but the chaff, the waste would be gathered and it would be burnt. The one was heavier than the other. That's why the, the wind could, could separate it. And this is the illustration that, that John the Baptist uses here. And this is the context around verse 11. This is the context that we see around verse 11. Verse 11 is talking about judgment. Verse 11 is talking about judgment. John the Baptist is talking to those who have not repented of their sins. And he says in verse 8, you have to bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Keeping in, uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So 
Back to our verse here in verse 11. John goes on to say that he baptized with water for repentance, but Jesus will come with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, this does not mean that Jesus would abolish and replace water baptism. John the Baptist meant that in addition, in addition to water baptism, Jesus would add two outcomes that would come from God, the Holy Spirit and fire. So there are three baptisms mentioned here in verse 11, the baptism of water, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the baptism of fire. Now the first one, the baptism of water. The word baptism comes from a Greek word that means to immerse. And John was immersing people in the water of the, the Jordan River. And that's why we immerse um, people who get baptized today. We don't sprinkle water on people's heads. We immerse people just as the word baptism means. And this is a picture. It's a symbolic representation of the death of Christ, His burial, and the resurrection of Christ. When we take somebody up out of the water, when we put them in the water, it's a picture of the death, the burial. And then when we pull them up out of the water, it is a picture of the, the resurrection of Christ. And we see that in, in Romans. When we are raised out of the water, we are symbolically resurrected, which represents what Christ has done already for us. It represents our new life in Christ, to be with Him and be part of the family of God. That's what water baptism is, and that's why it's so important to be baptized as a Christian. Second one we see there is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So roughly 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, he appeared to his apostles and he told them in Acts chapter 1 verse 5 that they would soon be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you remember our series through the book of Acts that happened right in chapter 1. And then Jesus' statement was fulfilled a few days later on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when they received the gift of the, the Holy Spirit. This was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This was an event that happened, a once-off occurrence. And I want to stress that we don't have this event happening every single four weeks or four months or six months. This was a once-off occurrence. And today we are baptized in the Holy Spirit when we receive the Holy Spirit. That happens at the day of our salvation. We receive the Spirit of God immediately when we are born again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, it tells us that all believers have been baptized by the Spirit of God into one body. It doesn't say some believers. It says all believers. There is no state of, of limbo where where a person is saved, but he's not part of the body of Christ. As soon as we are born again, we are part of the body of Christ because we all have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, when we are born again. This is not a second baptism. This is not a, a spirit baptism to, to kickstart your spiritual gifts or to give you even the gift of tongues. This is not the correct teaching of Scripture. 
In fact, nowhere in the Bible are believers told to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This happens automatically. But we are told to be filled with the Spirit. Clearly, Ephesians 5 tells us, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. And we see that happening. In Acts chapter 2, the believers were baptized in the Holy Spirit. But then in Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 6, in Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 9, they are being filled with the Spirit again and again and again. So it's possible to be empty of the Spirit, not to the point where we don't have the Spirit, but to the point where we sin, isn't it? Rather than listening to the Spirit of God, we end up listening to our flesh. And we need to repent of that and ask the Lord to fill us with His Spirit so that we can walk in unity with Him. And we can honor Him and obey His Word rather than, be, rather than falling to the temptations of the devil and the world and the flesh. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. We are not commanded to be baptized by the Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happens automatically the day you are born again at the moment of your salvation. Now, the third baptism there that we see is the baptism of fire in verse 11. Now, this baptism of fire refers to judgment, as we have seen. The context clearly shows us. The immediate context of Matthew is judgment. The Lord is coming in a flaming fire to judge those who do not know God. Jesus will sort the wheat from the chaff. The wheat he will gather into silos and the chaff will be burnt with unquenchable fire. Now, when would that happen? Well, at the beginning of our passage in verse 2, John preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was coming to set up his kingdom. He came to bring good news of forgiveness. And the way we enter his kingdom is when we are born again. This is a kingdom that is invisible, but a kingdom we become part of the moment we are born again. Jesus came to set this up. He came to bring good news of forgiveness. But it is only good news for those who recognize their sin, who repent and turn to God, who then have their sins forgiven, and as John says, show fruit of repentance. For those who reject this offer, for those who reject God's good news through Jesus Christ, they will receive the baptism of fire. They will receive the baptism of fire. Baptism of fire is about judgment. And those who do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance will be destroyed. The chaff will burn with unquenchable fire, the fire of judgment. This baptism of fire, as we have seen from the other baptisms, is the immersing. We will not just be sprinkled with fire, we will be immersed in the lake of fire at the time of judgment if we have not turned to Christ in repentance and faith. That's what awaits the world. For those who receive Him, receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and those who reject Him, receive the baptism of fire. 
There is no in-between. Some may argue that, well, the event in Acts 2 describes baptism of fire. We're talking about Pentecost. Remember in Acts chapter 2? Turn there with me, if you would, uh, just to remind you again of what is happening here. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now many interpret this passage as the baptism of fire because Acts 2.3 says, Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Now I agree, this is when they received the, the Spirit of God. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God wasn't living in them. This was a, a once-off occasion. This was a miracle that God would send His Spirit into the lives of believers. This has never happened before. This is a unique occasion. But notice there, it doesn't say fire. Instead, it says tongues as of fire in the ESV. In the, in the NIV, it says tongues like fire appeared. So there was an appearance. It was an actual fire. And too often people jump to the conclusion that, that this is the baptism of fire when the word baptism isn't even mentioned there in Acts chapter 2. The only passage that clearly describes the baptism of fire, that mentions the word baptism of fire, is here in Matthew chapter 3 verse 11. And as we have seen the context and as we have interpreted it correctly, the baptism of fire is not an extra blessing. It is eternal judgment. It is eternal judgment on those who do not repent. It is not a special baptism for next level believers. The wheat will receive the Holy Spirit and eternal life, but the chaff will receive the baptism of fire and eternal judgment. We used to sing a song here at New Life Church called Breathe on Us by Carrie Joby. Is that how you say it? Joby? Job? In the song, it says, Holy Spirit, hear us now. Breathe on us. Holy fire, fall. Come and fill this place with your presence like a Rushing wind, send your spirit here, breathe. Breath of heaven, breathe on us. Now, I hope you see from our study today why the song was removed from our song list and why it's important to interpret the scriptures correctly, isn't it? We don't want to be praying for the spirit of fire, this baptism of, of fire. One Christian author once said, our theology fuels our doxology. In other words, what we believe about God, our theology, fuels our worship, fuels our doxology. What we believe about God needs to be from the Scriptures. 
We can't learn about God from, from Facebook or from Instagram or from a little bit of Scripture we read once a year. Our theology about God needs to be from the Scriptures that we need to read and we need to understand properly and interpret properly. God doesn't reveal Himself to us in the clouds or, or, or in a magazine or on social media. God reveals Himself to us through His Word. If we want to know God, this is where we find Him, in the Scriptures. We need to read the Scriptures properly. We need to understand the Scriptures correctly. We cannot be asking God to breathe on us His holy fire of judgment. Stephen Lawson, he once said, A high view of God leads to high worship and holy living. But a low view of God leads to trivial worship and low living. And I, I believe this to be true. The only way we will have a high view of God and live a life that is pleasing and make decisions that honor God is if we allow the Scriptures to reveal God to us through His Word. And our life is conformed by the Scriptures, not, not by our friends, not by the world, not by the latest fashions, but by the Word of God. Remember in Exodus 32, Ray talked about this this morning at our family Bible hour. And I really would encourage you to try and join us for our family Bible hour. It's important that we allow ourselves to be conformed to the Scriptures. I mean, think of how much time you spend in the week looking at television, right? You allow yourselves to hear what the world has to tell you, and then we come to church for, for an hour, and you, you hear the Scriptures being interpreted for 45 minutes. That's not enough, folks. We need to allow the, the Scriptures to inform us and conform us, and that only happens when we're sitting under the teaching of the Word of God. Sorry, that was for free. That wasn't where I was going. <laughs> In Exodus 32, we find a, a sad example Remember the Israelites, they, they grow impatient with Moses being away on Mount Sinai and meeting with God and receiving the Ten Commandments from God. So instead of worshiping God the way they were told to in His Word, the way that they were prescribed to worship God, the way that they were told to worship a thrice holy God, they instead decided to worship Him the way that they wanted to, what was convenient for them. What pleased their affections? And what did they do? They built a golden calf and they made an altar before it. And in Exodus 32 verse 4 it says, And Aaron received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So it's possible that these people thought that they were worshiping Yahweh in this form of a golden calf. And even if they thought that this is how Yahweh looked, they were building an image of the one who had already told them 12 chapters before not to do that. They were told not to make carved images in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. They were told not to make any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or, or, be, or below. And they were not to worship these images. 
They had God's instructions. They had his word. You see, even though they had the scriptures, they decided that they knew better. That they wanted to change the scriptures, interpret them the way they wanted to. And we all know what happened as a result of their, of their disobedience, isn't it? Our theology fuels our doxology. What we believe about God fuels our worship. We cannot worship God rightly in obedience to His, His Word if we are not interpreting the Bible rightly. If we are not reading the Bible, if we are not studying the Scriptures. Or maybe you, you think today, well, theology or, or doctrine is, is unimportant. Pastor, you're just being stuffy. You know? Let's just forget about doctrine and let's just love each other. Or maybe you're so gifted that you don't think that you, you need doctrine or theology. Well, let me remind you, the chances are you are not as gifted as Timothy was. Pastor Timothy, who pastored the church at Ephesus, Paul told Timothy to pay attention to his doctrine. He was to pay attention to his doctrine. He told Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth. And that means you and I, we all need to be doing that. Doctrine is what keeps us going when, when the world around us is crashing. When the stock market goes up and goes down and things affect us that we can't control. Our understanding of who God is fuels our worship. It helps us understand God and trust God and lean on Him as our anchor when the storms around us are crashing everything else. Doctrine is what draws us near to God and keeps fresh our love for and our awe of God. It was after chapter 11, it was 11 chapters after Paul's most densely packed argument, his systematic presentation of doctrine. I'm talking about the book of Romans. 11 chapters of intense doctrine. What does he do? He leaps into worship. He leaps into doxology. And he can only, I'm going to read to you Romans 11 verse 33. This is his, this is his doxology. This is his, his worship here. And he can only worship God like this because he has saturated himself with the right theology. He says in Romans 11 verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And then He says, to Him be glory forever. How many times have you said that in your life, folks? When you're stuck in a prison cell, when things are going bad in your, in your work, when things are going bad in your, in your marriage, if you've been able to cling on to verses that are filled with rich doctrine and say to the Lord in the midst of your deepest struggle, to you be glory forever and ever. 
And Paul was never more worshipful than when he was his most theological. And theology nourished Paul's heart, and it will nourish our hearts. And that's why we need to pay attention to our life and to our doctrine. We need to pray, and I ask that you will pray with me. As a church, it will be loving the Scriptures more. They will be reading the Scriptures more. It will be sitting under the Word more. And rightly interpreting the Scriptures so that we'll be shaped into worshipers of God that honor Him the way He deserves to be honored. That we would be people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. That we will be people passionate about our Savior and eager to know Him so that we can make Him known to the world around us who are lost in their sins and who will die in an eternal lake of fire if we don't share the good news of Christ with them. Pray that with me, even this week. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is inspired. We are not reading man's interpretation here. We are not reading our own interpretation. We submit to your holy word today as it has been written and had it has been intended to be heard. And help us to bow to that, Lord. Help us not to be deceived by the devil who wants us to misquote and twist the scriptures for our own benefit. But let's submit, Lord, to you and your word as we read it, as we understand it, we pray, give us understanding, Lord. Give us understanding so that we can pray just like the Apostle Paul did, Lord, that through you and to you all things belong. And how unsearchable are your ways. Search us, Lord, that we may see if there be any sin in us. And I pray today, Father, if there are people who are still unrepentant of their sin, people who are still playing religion. As John the Baptist warns us, Lord, that they would confess their sins and bear fruit in keeping with their repentance so that they would not be in danger of this hellfire. Lord, we wouldn't want that on our worst enemy. We wouldn't want that on any of our family members. So we pray for their salvation today. We pray, Lord, please, may our May our Christianity be genuine, Lord. May our love for you be real, that people around us would see Christ in us, that we would be able to point them to truth. Forgive us of our laziness, Lord, when it comes to knowing you and your scriptures. And help us, Lord, to make you a priority, make your word a priority every single day of our lives. For your honor, Lord, for your glory, but also for our joy. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.